Well, guys, you guys have a seat, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter, uh, back in chapter 4 today. Uh, I appreciate Zane reading the scriptures that he read for us earlier today, where we uh, heard the story about um, Elijah and how that God sent her to the widow that was uh, there in that uh, city. Uh, she was a foreigner. She was not part of, of Israel. In fact, this story is mentioned later in the New Testament when Jesus talks about how that God was taking the gospel to, uh, to foreigners. And so here he is. He sent, uh, can you imagine a prophet of God being sent to a widow who is preparing her last meal? And she is, uh, she is down to her last meal. She's gathering the sticks to build the fire, to bake the last bread. Her and her child would sit down and eat that, and then their expectation was they would die. The famine was severe. What is, what is talked about in this story and the way that, that is presented to us shows us the, her, her desperation and shows us how that, uh, that she had lost all hope. This was it. This was the end of the line for her. And while she's gathering the sticks, a prophet of God shows up and says, hey, by the way, I need you to feed me before you feed your child. Moms, I don't know about you, but if that was asked of me, I don't know that I could do it. If you ask me to feed a stranger before I feed my child who's starving, I don't know that I could do that. There's a lot of strange requests that God sends our way. A lot of things that God says in his word that, that when you first read it, you go, man, this just doesn't make sense. It, just, it, it seems too extreme and too far for us to go. But this lady listened and she obeyed. God had told uh, Elijah that he was going to prepare her heart, that he had commanded her to feed him. And she was now responding as, as he came. It took great faith on her part to give up the last of what she had, trusting that God would supply her with more. And that's really going to be the theme of what we talk about here today, is that God calls us to empty our jars. God has poured into us, and and, and so many times our our tendency as human beings is to want to hoard what God has given to us, to keep it to ourselves, to make sure that we've got something laid up for a rainy day just in case. But we'll see in this story, and we'll see in how it ties into to 1 Peter chapter 4, that God calls us to empty our jars so that he can refill us daily. I think sometimes we're so full of ourselves that there's not much room for God to pour anything else into us. So we see in this story this lady that, that, that uh, did the ridiculous. She went back home. She took the little flour and the little oil that she had. She baked a cake first for the prophet Elijah and fed him. Can you imagine using up the last bit of oil, the last bit of flour, taking it out to the prophet and feeding him and then going back home and looking in those two containers and seeing even more. She experienced that not just once, but she experienced that day after day after day. She believed the Lord's promise. She took his word seriously. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't even of their faith. When she refers to his God, she says, your God, not mine. Surely as your God lives, I don't have anything left. But she listened and she obeyed. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds insane. It sounds very selfish of a prophet to show up and say, hey, give me the bread off your kid's plate. But sometimes the things that God calls us to do sound ridiculous, and yet they're true. And and, and for her to experience the joy of God's endless supply, she had to first empty her jar. And guys, I want to say to you this morning, as clear as I know how, that if we are going to experience the endless supply of God's joy, 
we have got to empty ourselves of everything that's standing in the way. We've got to empty ourselves of everything that would keep God from being able to, to pour out his joy and his satisfaction and all that he has on us. And if we don't do that, then we will never be filled the way that God wants us to be filled. So she had to experience this, this joy by emptying her jar. And she emptied it day after day, and God filled it day after day. And I think in this passage in 1 Peter, Peter is calling his listeners to do the same. Let's pick up in 1 Peter chapter 4. Dalton left off last week in verse 6. We're going to pick up in verse 7 today. It ties back into what Dalton had shared with us last week where he tells us we've lived long enough in the, in the old life. We've lived long enough for the passions of the, of the Gentile, unsaved, uh, unregenerate world that we've lived like that long enough. Now it's time for us to, to live the way that God has called us to. And so this passage today kind of lays out for us what that new life is supposed to look like, what it looks like for us to empty ourselves for the benefit of others, for the glory of God what that looks like. And so he starts off this, this passage, this, this verse today with, with these words. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end is near. When I read a phrase like that, I picture some guy with a sandwich sign walking down the street on the corner. You know, the end is near, the end is near, repent, turn, the end is near. And we look at people like that and we think, man, that guy is crazy. He has lost his mind. But that's the way Peter and the apostles and the New Testament church lived their life with this expectation that Jesus could come back any minute. Peter had walked with Jesus. He had fellowship with Jesus. He had, he had even denied Jesus and been restored by Jesus. Peter had been through heaven and hell with Jesus. And now Jesus was gone. And Jesus had said to him, I'll be gone for a little while and then I'll return. And, and Peter and them expected Jesus to come back. I don't think that Peter is trying to say here that he knew the hour or the time or exactly when Christ would come back. He had been there when Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows that. Peter's not trying to predict the exact moment that Jesus comes back, but Peter's trying to say something to, to, the, to, to the believers that he's writing to. He says, you lived in the Gentile world forever. You, you lived for your own passions and for your own, your, own, your own pleasures forever, and you never gave a minute's thought to the end. You never gave a minute's thought to to what it was going to be like when you stood before the Lord. He says, I want to refocus your mind now. And I want you to focus upon the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. Soon. I love what my friend Diane says. She said, I'm waiting for the frogs to start falling out of the sky. <laughs> all these plagues and all these problems and all these disasters that we've had, you know, it, it's about, you're about at that point where you're going, okay. We're reaching the end. And I know every generation, every generation has thought this is it. This has got to be it. We've been through world wars. We've been through terrible disasters. We've been through all kinds of things. And, and our world always thinks this is it. But for us as believers, it shouldn't just be a fear that the end is there. It ought to be an anticipation and a joy and an excitement about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. Peter longed for Jesus' return. In fact, Peter says when, he, when he's saying here that, that the end of all things is near, it's not a guy with a sandwich sign that we think is going crazy. In fact, Peter says it's crazy for a believer to live any other way than with this expectation. It's crazy for a believer to live any other way than to anticipate and to long for the return of Jesus Christ. I've thought about this illustration, and I, I hope I don't get in trouble for sharing this. But I can remember before Janet and I got married, we were engaged and we were 
in our, in our dating relationship. And man, I, we had both waited for each other to be married. And uh, I remember leading up to this, this wedding and thinking, you know, it's just my luck. Jesus will come back the night before I get married. <laughs> I thought, Jesus, I want you to come back, but can you wait till after the honeymoon? You know why I felt that way? Because I didn't have a very clear understanding of everything that Jesus had waiting for me. If I understood what he had waiting for me, that never would have been an issue in my mind. But what do we do? All we know is the pleasures of this world. All we know is the stuff that that we've heard about that is so good and so grand and it's a great gift of God and we just want the stuff of this world and we we give very little thought to all that God has waiting for us there. Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know why we get stuck on wanting the stuff of the world? Because we forget everything that God has waiting for us there. And even when we do remember, it's usually on our deathbed. I can't tell you how many times I've been seeing people that are so driven for the stuff of this world. I mean, every day it's just another, they got to conquer something else. They got to get something more. They got to build, 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 build. And then they get on their deathbed and they, they get this diagnosis that, that life is going to end soon. And all of a sudden they start longing for Jesus. But their best days are behind them. And their opportunity to make an impact is gone. And, and, and they've lived their whole life up to that last few days. Longing for the world. And then they hit their deathbed. Or they get that call from the doctor. And they go, oh, I need to start living for Jesus. Now, I'm glad they're doing it. Better late than never, right? But guys, listen, we need to, we need to get a grasp of what eternity is going to be like. And what it's going to be like to be reunited with Jesus. And, and, and we're in a little different position than Peter was because Peter had walked with Jesus. He had seen his heart and his compassion. We just read the words, but Peter had seen flesh and blood. And he knew what that was like. And man, he longed to be re- reunited with his best friend. And so he starts off by saying, all the, things, the, the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter may not have been meaning that the end of the world was coming, but you know what? For these believers, most of them, they would not live much longer. Right after Peter finishes this writing, Nero is going to launch that attack upon believers, and many of them will be slaughtered at his hands. You and I, we don't know when Jesus is going to return, but neither do we know when we will be taken out of this life. I was visiting with a friend yesterday who just lost his mother suddenly. I did the funeral two weeks ago. One minute she's there, and the next minute she was gone. We don't know. The end could be right now. It could be tomorrow. And so Peter gives us some instructions. He's going to use the word therefore, Dalton. Okay? And any time the word therefore is used, what do we do? We ask, what's it there for? That's right. You taught them well. They got this. Why has he put the word therefore there? He's saying, look, in in, in view of the fact that the end is near, whether it's the end of your life or the end of, of the world where Jesus is coming back, the end is near, and because that is true, there's some things you need to do. He links those two things together. Based upon this fact that the end is near, there's a, a way that we need to live. 
And here's what he says in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Now, I don't prefer that rendering. That, when, when you go back into the Greek, he, he's, he's, he, what he's saying is, therefore, use sound judgment. That's what the Greek says. When we say be self-controlled, we kind of think about using self-control and, and keeping yourself in the lines. He's saying here, use sound judgment. Think correctly. Think biblically. That's what he's really saying here. Therefore, be, be, be self-controlled. Think biblically. Use sound judgment and sober-minded, which is, is, is really the, 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 the translation of that is to be spiritually observant. So he's asking us to do things. Because the end is near, we need to think biblically, and we need to, to be spiritually sensitive, spiritually observant to what the Spirit of God is doing. And when we do those two things, it aids us in our prayers to the Lord, which is what he says. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If we learn anything through the New Testament church, it was through the power of prayer that these guys connected with God. Through the power of prayer, they called upon God to do what they could not do. It's through the power of prayer that they found their needs met. They found the boldness and the courage that they needed to stand and to preach the gospel in, in the face of, uh, uh, of insurmountable odds. And these guys stood and they watched and they, they, they saw God do things that they could not do. And he's saying here that you and I need to think biblically. Why? Because that's going to influence the way that we pray. When I think biblically, all of a sudden my, my mind turns from the things of this world. That old song we used to sing in church, that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've got to think biblically. I've got to think Jesus' thoughts. I've got to look at life the way that he looked at life. And when we do that, and we're sensitive to the spirit. We are sober-minded. We are spiritually observant, the, the Greek says. It influences the way that we pray. It influences the things that we pray for. It influences the power and the response, I think, that God wants to, to give to us. Verse 8, he continues to talk about how this knowledge of Christ's second coming, this focus upon the fact that one day we will stand before the Lord, that we will give an account to him, that how that happens is, is to, to bring us back together. Now, we, let, me, let me take you, first of all, to, to, uh, to Luke chapter 12. I want to show you a passage here where he talks about the second coming of Christ. And Peter was here when Jesus spoke these words. In, in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 35 to, to 46, Jesus is speaking. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. You, you get the, the urgency here. Don't put your lamps out. Don't, don't undress. Don't crawl in the bed. Don't just go to sleep on me, Jesus is saying. I want you to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so they can open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Here's that anticipation of the return of Christ. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and he will have them recline at the table. Think about that, the master serving his servants. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter says, here's Peter, the guy right in the book that we're reading. Peter says this, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? 
And the Lord said, Who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds uh, will find doing so when he comes. And truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming. Maybe he's not coming back. Or maybe it's a long time off still. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. What's Jesus saying to Peter and to the the other disciples and those that are listening? He's saying, you need to be ready. I'm coming back one day and you need to be ready. And and, and Peter was writing to to tell his his, his readers that they needed to be ready. He's going to come back in the book of 2 Peter and and, and kind of clarify and build upon this thought again. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, we see that he's he's going to remind them again that that the coming of Jesus is is soon. And even though some people say that it's, it's not, they need to beware. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, where is your Jesus? It's been 2,000 years, guys. Where's Jesus? Peter thought he was coming 2,000 years ago. He hadn't made it yet. So they will say with scoffing. Where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 8, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, though, that with the Lord one day is is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now listen to the grace of God here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some would look at Peter's statement saying the the end is near and say, man, Peter missed it. Peter just just missed it. It's been 2,000 years. Peter comes back and says, listen, guys, if God delays, it's for a purpose. And that purpose is that more people might know Jesus Christ. So every day that God gives us, every day that he allows us to to live on this earth, he's left us here to lead more people to Jesus and to tell them about the difference that Christ will make. And how do we do that? Well, it's got to start with us before it's ever going to reach out to them. And here's the way that it starts. He gives us three things that we need to do in verses 8 and 9. There's three one another statements that he makes here. I want you to catch that it's one another. It's not just you do this to others, but y'all do it to one another. You do it back and forth. It's a mutual thing that's to be here in the body of Christ. How do we think biblically? How do we remain spiritually sensitive? How do we pray? And how do we respond? Verse 8, above all, I want you to keep loving one another earnestly. The first thing that we've got to do is we've got to love one another earnestly. In Acts chapter 4, let me turn over there with you. We get a report of what God's doing in the early church and the way that God continues to pour out his blessings upon the early church. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, um, 
I want to share with you how that God worked in their midst and the things that he did. Listen to this. They just finished speaking the word of God with boldness. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 32, it says, Now the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was great unity in that church. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. There was a great love that they had for one another. But they had everything in common. I heard a statement this past week that just, that just resonated with me. It said this. It said it was a we over me. We over me. That's the way they lived. It's, it's us over me. It's we over me. And it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church had a great focus to share the gospel about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. There was great equality among the people. For as many as were owners of the land or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold. There was great stewardship that was taking place in the early church. And it says, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. They had great trust in their leaders. And it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a great ministry that took place because the people gave. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There was a great example of their leaders. In this early church, we see what it means to to love one another and to love one another earnestly. They did that again and again and again, and God continued to add to their number daily those who were coming to Christ. So he says, above all, I want you to keep loving one another earnestly. I want you to love one another from the bottom of your heart, not something that's just uh, uh, surface level or superficial, but something that is deep and is earnest. And then he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't just mean that, that, that love denies that there's sin, that love denies that there's problems. But love looks beyond the problem and sees the solution. Love looks beyond the sin and sees a savior. Love looks beyond <coughs> the difficulty and it sees the grace that covers that. I read a, a quote by Wayne Grudem, who, who writes systematic theology books. And Wayne said this. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, where love abounds, many small offenses and even some larger offenses are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. And every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflict abounds to Satan's perverse delight. Where love is thick and love abounds, we overlook one another's mistakes. Why? Because the grace of God has been given to us and we apply that grace to others as well. But where love is thin, every word is looked on with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflict abounds. And the whole time Satan rejoices. 
Peter says, listen, guys, if we're going to be the church, if we're going to live as if Christ were coming tomorrow and we were going to see him face to face, then we've got to have a love for one another that's unlike anything this world can duplicate, unlike anything this world could ever even begin to understand. So keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The second thing he says we need to do is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality. In this day and time when, 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 when uh, the Jews would come into a town to be able to worship, they didn't have anywhere to stay and to, to lodge. And there were some hotels and there were some places like that you could stay, but most of those things were filled with prostitution. It was not a place that a believer would want to be. And so the custom of that day was when, when a fellow Jew came to town and needed a place to stay, you would open up your home and you would invite them in and they would come and they would stay with you. And you were responsible for feeding them and caring for them and making sure their needs were met while they were with you. And sometimes they would stay a little while. And there was always that tendency to either want to make known your good deeds to others, which is not a good thing, or to begin to grumble, oh my gosh, this person's been here for four days and I don't think they're ever going to leave. He's going to say at the end of this passage that everything that we do is to be done to bring glory to God. And let me just give you a a little pop out here, okay? If you're grumbling, you're not glorifying God, okay? No matter how good the deed is, if you're going to grumble because you had to do it, then you're not bringing glory to God. And, And here's the reason. When I do the deed and I'm not doing it for God, I'm probably going to grumble, But when I do the deed, and I know that I'm not doing it just for that person, but I'm doing it for the glory of God, there's no reason to grumble. There's reason to glorify. There's reason to to, to thank the Lord that he's given you the resources to be able to do that thing. And so he says here, I want you to to love one another earnestly, but I want you to show hospitality to one another. And, and, And what that involves is giving to one another. Giving of your space, giving of your home, giving of your food, giving of your time, giving of your service. You're, you're giving to somebody else. If they come and stay in your home and, and you're exercise, exercising hospitality to them, then you are giving to them. And you need to do so without grumbling. You need to do so as if you were giving it to the Lord himself. And Peter says that's an important thing that we do. This sound judgment leads us to do these three things, to love one another, to give to one another, And the third thing he says here is that we should serve one another. These are the three marks of a a growing, vibrant church. It's a church that knows how to love one another, that knows how to to give to one another, and that knows how to serve one another. And so he says in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift. Now he may be talking about spiritual gifts, or he may be talking about physical gifts and blessings that God pours out upon us. He doesn't distinguish between the two, but he says this, as each has received a gift, use it, whatever that gift is, use it to serve one another. There's the third one another. So I'm to use my gift to serve you, and you're to use your gift to serve others, and we are to mutually minister to one another through the gifts that God has given us. Some of you, God's given great gifts in, 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 in finances. Use that for the glory of God. Some of you, God's given great insight, great empathy, great encouragement, great gifts, and, 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 and great skills and stuff. Use those things for the glory of God. So that's what we're called to do is to take these gifts that God has given to us and to see them not just as my own, but to see this as, as tools that God gives me to minister to one another, to serve one another. 
And so he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Your gifts are not going to be like my gifts. They're varied. And the Holy Spirit decides who gets what and when we get it. But as the Holy Spirit pours out his blessings and his gifts upon us, we are to take those gifts and to use them for other people. Your spiritual gifts that you have were not given to you for your own benefit. They were not given to you to puff you up or to make you look spiritual. They were given to you so that you might serve one another, so that we might build up the body of Christ, so we might become mature, obtaining that maturity that, that Christ desires, that we would lack nothing. We see that back in Acts, the passage that we read. There's two different kinds of gifts. He kind of groups the gifts into two gifts here, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And it's not that those are mutually exclusive, but he mentions both here in this passage. He says, I want you to be a good steward of God's gifts, God's grace. So whoever speaks should speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Make sure that your speech is lining up with the truth of God's word. Would you agree that our words could be used to build people up or to tear people down? Our words could be used to encourage others or to discourage others. Our words could be used for good or they could be used for evil. He says, make sure the words you speak are the words that line up with the truth of God's word. Let your words be as as if you're speaking the very oracles of God. My words should be his words. And then whoever serves. Man, you need to serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies when I think about people serving with the strength that God supplies immediately what comes to my mind is Delbert Willis week after week we'd eaten everything around our church sweating like nobody's business taking care of the lawn and I go out there and say Delbert I appreciate what you're doing he says praise the Lord I got the strength to do it That's the kind of attitude that Peter's writing about here. Whoever serves, serve with the strength that God supplies. Why would we do that? He tells us. He says, in order that in everything, in everything, whether you're loving, whether you're giving, whether you're serving with your words or serving with your strength, in everything that you do, that God might be glorified. That's the reason we live. That's the reason God has us here, is to bring him glory. To bring him glory. Here's what Peter's calling us to do. He says three things. I want you to love, I want you to give, and I want you to serve. Here's what he's saying. I want you to empty your jar. Don't hold back love. What good is it if you have a jar full of love and you take it to your grave? Love doesn't matter unless it's given away. What good does it matter if you, if you stockpile all kinds of stuff and you never show hospitality, you never give, you never use what God's given you to be a blessing to, to somebody else? What good is that if you take all that to the grave with you? What good is it if God places spiritual gifts in you and you never get around to using that for his glory? Man, empty the jar Peter says, empty the jar. What are you saving it for? I don't know about your house, 
But we have this cabinet in my house. It's filled with this beautiful china that we were given when we got married. And it's in a cabinet with a light and it shines and it sparkles and it does all that and it stays in that cabinet. And I think we've used it maybe a dozen times in the 30 years we've been married. Looks good. But it really hasn't made a difference. I I look at that china cabinet, I was looking at it this morning, and I thought about my grandma Lucy. A couple years while I was in college, I lived with my grandmother and had the best time. And Janet and I were dating, and when Janet would come to town, Grandma Lucy would get out the good stuff. And she'd serve these big old meals that we never would eat all of it, but she said, I want to have more than enough. And she put it on her good dishes, and one day I said, Grandma, don't, don't dirty up your good dishes. And she said this to me, I'll never forget She says, tell me somebody in my life that's more important than my family. And I'll save those dishes for them. She said, if I don't use it, what good is it? And she'd drag those dishes out and she'd serve us those meals. And then she'd start washing dishes. And I always hated washing dishes. I said, oh, Grandma, I hate doing dishes. And she says, I learned a long time ago, Rob, if I've got dirty dishes, it means I had something to eat tonight. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying, guys, I want you to to love, and I want you to give, and I want you to serve, and I don't want you to hold anything back. I want you to empty out the jar. Why? Because if you empty it out, God's going to refill it again and again. You can never out-love. You can never out-give. You can never out-serve the Lord that gives us strength and the gifts and and, and the love and the grace and all that he's poured in. You can't outdo that. And I think what Peter's trying to say in this passage is, guys, listen, Jesus is coming back. Don't don't hold back for that rainy day. Today could be your last. Don't wait till tomorrow. You may not be given tomorrow. Remember the movie that came out a while back, The Bucket List? About all the things you want to do before you die. And most of us have, if we don't have it written out, we've got something in our head of things that we'd like to do before we die. The problem with our bucket list, guys, is it's all about us most of the time. And it's seldom about the kingdom of God. And the truth is this, and I hope you grab a hold of this. The truth is this. We are left here for a purpose. And that purpose has very little to do with my pleasure and everything to do with God's kingdom. And yet, when we look at our bucket lists... So often, Jesus never makes the list. And it ought not be that way. Peter says, I want you to have sound judgment. I want you to be spiritually sensitive. And I want you to pray as you live. Pray as you love. Pray as you give. Pray as you serve. Because that's how you give God glory in everything that you do. And to him, and to him alone belong all the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps we don't empty the jar. 
because we don't really believe that Jesus will refill it. Man, if I love and they don't love me back, if I give and then I don't have enough for me, if I serve and wear myself out, I can run myself in the grave, I'd rather wear out than rust out. Think of all that the widow would have missed out had she not trusted God and emptied her jar. She would have eaten her last meal and her and her child would have died and they would have missed seeing the glory of God for all those days. But instead she obeyed and she lived and every day she was reminded of the faithfulness of God to put back in what she had poured out. So what are you missing out on by not emptying your jar? By not loving earnestly, by not giving joyfully, by not serving willingly. And what are others missing out on because you are not doing your part? I think there's a joy that we will never experience until we learn to empty the jar. Because there's a joy that God can't pour in as long as we're full of ourselves and our own stuff. So I think there's a joy we'll never experience until we empty the jar in light of the coming of Christ. And the reason that we do it is for the glory of God, that he can be glorified. And as I thought about this all week, I thought about this saying, and it's just stuck in my mind. I think it's a truth that's worth remembering, maybe something even worth writing down. And that is this, that I will never deny myself until I delight myself in someone greater. We can talk all day long about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. The truth is I will never deny myself until I delight myself in someone greater. That someone greater is Jesus. And if I'm not looking forward to and anticipating his return, then I'm not going to live this way. If my heart is satisfied with the junk food of this world, I'll never appreciate all the banquet that he has prepared for us. So here's what Peter's saying. I want you to live with expectancy. I want you to long for the day that you'll see Christ. And as you do that, it will change the how and the why that you live. It'll change the way you love one another. It'll change the way you give to one another. And it'll change the way you serve one another. And that's the only way that everything we do can bring glory and honor to God. I'm going to pray. And as we close, I want to ask you to, to be honest with God, be honest with yourself. Are you holding back? Or are you emptying the jar? Are you thinking about you and yours? Or are you listening, spiritually sensitive to what the Spirit of God's saying? So that when he prompts you to do something, you say, Lord, this seems strange. It, 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 it seems crazy. But I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to obey you. And I'm going to watch you work in a way that I would never see you work if I didn't obey. Let's pray.